you must also pass on the family recipe for making the pot roast. Yet even that is not quite enough. You must also find a way to pass along the culinary skills needed to transform a recipe written in words into an actual plate of pot roast. Figuratively speaking, a civilization must pass on the china, the recipe, and the cook. But even this is not quite enough. You must also make the cook realize that in addition to cooking, he must know how to replace himself and, most critically, he must feel that he has a duty to replace himself. Not only must he teach his children to cook, but he must also teach them how to teach their children to cook. The grandchild, far from being incidental, is decisive. Civilization persists when there is a widespread sense of an ethical obligation on the part of the present generation for the well-being of the third generation, their own grandchildren. Beloved, Christianity is an evangelistic, disciple-making religion. And that is because God is an evangelistic and disciple-making God. He does not permit us to merely bask in the glow of our own redemption. As if somehow that is an end unto itself. He is not even satisfied if we merely follow in an ethical way His precepts living righteously in a world. There is necessarily the obligation inherent within Christianity to think about the grandchildren, to go beyond ourselves, to recognize the obligation to pass on, in Mr. Harris's words, not just the china and the recipe, in the cook, but to pass on the requirement, the obligation, the sense of duty for the cook to replace themselves. It's not about us. It's about those beyond us whom we haven't even seen in many cases. It's not even really about our children. It's about our grandchildren. For some time, I've thought about these things. When I say some time, I'm talking years. And as I've thought about that, I... You know, people live a period of time. God grants them some period of life. And as I think about my own life, I think, what do I want to accomplish? How will I know when I've accomplished my purposes in life? One of the measures that I've latched on to is the salvation of my grandchildren. My prayer is, God, let me live long enough to see my grandchildren come to faith in Christ. Because I will know that when I see my grandchildren come to faith in Jesus Christ, that I have successfully discipled my own children 
to the point where they were then able to disciple another generation. So I've adopted that as my personal standard or measure of when my life's mission is fulfilled. It's incumbent upon us as the people of God to be thinking beyond ourselves. To think about disciple-making. To think about the generations that you can't even see yet. Therefore, by God's grace, we will engage in three activities designed to develop disciples to reach the nations. This is our fifth core value. Developing disciples to reach the nations. And like all the other core values, we've sort of defined and delineated this in terms of three specific focuses. The first one this morning is that Foothill Bible Church develops disciples to reach the nations by cultivating mature disciples. Mature disciples who are growing in Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel and committing their time, talent, and treasure to the Great Commission. Let me begin by just asking a question, and that is, what is a disciple? If we are committed to developing disciples, then we probably ought to begin with the question, what is a disciple? The word disciple, Greek, mathetes, it, it means essentially a follower. A follower. Now, the concept is huge, and it runs all through the Scriptures, and we don't have time this morning to, to try to deal with such a large topic, so I'm going to reduce it down to a thumbnail sketch, and I'll do that for you in John 15, so why don't you open up there. And let's just begin to try to put our arms around what it means to develop disciples. John 15, I want you to look at verse 16. Here in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus is speaking to His disciples. Verse 16 of John 15, He says, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He may give to you. The first definition of a disciple, the first way to help answer the question of what is a disciple is, that it is, a, it is a person who is called to Jesus Christ. And it begins, beloved, notice in verse 16, not with their initiative, but with His. It is a person whom Jesus Christ has called to Himself. Go back to verse 7 in the same chapter. Furthermore, he writes, verse 7, if you abide in me, that is to be in relationship with him, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. 
Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. A disciple, at least according to this part of John 15, is one who abides in Jesus Christ, one who obeys the commandments, one who bears fruit, one who glorifies God in their life, one who experiences God-given joy. This is a disciple. And the ultimate goal of every disciple is to become like Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said over in Luke chapter 6 and in verse 40, In fact, if you don't know that verse, it's worth turning there and then having you circle it in your Bible. Implications of this verse, by the way, are huge, run in many directions. But Jesus himself says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. The goal of discipleship is to become like Jesus Christ. When you are fully discipled, you will be like Christ. Paul says it this way. He speaks perhaps a little more theologically, but he says the same thing in Romans chapter 8 and in verse 29. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We are predestined to become like Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke 6.40, when you are fully mature, fully formed, you will be just like your teacher. In context, Christ. So what is a mature disciple? If a disciple is a follower and a mature disciple, a fully mature disciple is one who is like Christ, what is a mature disciple? Was one who's on his way to being formed like Christ. Now, as we've uh, tried to uh, attempt to define maturity within our own core values here, we've done it in, in three ways. We've said that a a mature disciple, the the general criteria by which we will define a mature disciple is one who is growing in Jesus Christ, one who is sharing the gospel, and one who is committing or investing their time, their talent, and their treasure in the work of the Great Commission. These These are measuring sticks of maturity. If you are a mature disciple... You're not there. You haven't arrived, but you're moving through the process of maturity. These are the things that ought to be true of your life. And indeed, beloved, if they are not true of your life, then you are less mature. So what does it mean to grow in Jesus Christ? It means to make progress. Simple as that. It means to make progress to become more like Christ. It means to be coming more like Jesus. It means to be more like Christ this year than you were last year. Or more like Christ now than you were 10 years ago. And to be more like Christ 10 years hence than you are today. If you're looking for something more practical to 
sort of measure yourself with, you can go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, right? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. How do you do? Take a little inventory. What's the fruit like in your life? So maturity here, we're saying, is growing in Christ. Beyond that, it is sharing the gospel. It is sharing the gospel. There is both an explicit and implicit necessity all over the New Testament to share the gospel. There's no evading it. No way to get around it. No way to miss it. Let me just, for example, show you a few places. I will take you to probably the most well-known, Matthew 28. So go ahead and go there, 19 and 20. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? The Great Commission. Well, go on over. Let's keep tracking through and go to Mark 16. And in verse 15, Mark 16, verse 15, And he said to them, that is Jesus, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Luke 24, verse 46. Luke 24, 46, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. John 17, verse 18. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, As you, God, have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And then in context, he'll begin to say, and it's, and it's those who will believe on account of their word, and then the next generation, and then the next generation. And so there's this ongoing obligation to be his witnesses in the world. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Well, we could just go... Acts 1.8, And you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, uh, Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Outgoing, like, like ripples from a stone in the water just moving out. Romans chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17. Here it's not as explicit, it's more implicit, but the necessity remains. Paul says to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. If it is the power of God unto salvation, then by necessity it must go to people who need salvation. 
and that is the world. A mature disciple understands this basic requirement and acts upon it. Third, a mature disciple commits time, talent, and treasure to the Great Commission. A mature disciple has reordered their priorities in such a way that their time and talent and treasure is being invested or committed to the work of the worldwide spread of the gospel and not to their own self-consumption. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The verse has to do with money, but it's deeper than money. 2 Corinthians 8, look at verses 4 and 5. No, verse 3 even. I could go all the way to 1, but we won't. Paul is, is writing to the Corinthians who are rich. And he's afraid that, that when he come, time comes for him to collect the offering, he's going to get there and there's not going to be anything. And so he writes to motivate them and he uses the Macedonian believers as, a, as an illustration of what it is they're supposed to be doing at Corinth. And, he's, and he, what he says, effectively, is that giving is not a matter of the size of your bank account. For I testify, verse 3, that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. There's where it is. They had reordered their priorities. They had given themselves first to God, and then it was easy to give of their time, their talent, and their treasure to God. It begins internally. The, the, the offering plate is merely the external manifestation of the internal reordering of one's priorities. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where is your heart? Old time preacher said, you want to know where your heart is? You look at the guy's day timer, you look at his checkbook, right? Where your treasure is there, where your heart be also, Jesus said. A mature disciple has rearranged his priorities. He's investing in eternity. Because he understands that that this here and now is is, is short. It's like James says it's like a, the vapor that sits above a cup of coffee. It's here and it's gone. So, how are you doing? How's your investment strategy? Are you investing in eternity or are you merely spending on whatever captures your fancy at the moment? And beloved, I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your time. 
Your talents, where is it going? Where are you using it? Are you investing it for eternal rewards or are you consuming it on your own pleasures? This is serious stuff, huh? Whose job is it, by the way? Whose responsibility is it to produce mature disciples? Whose job is that? Well, as you might imagine, New Testament has a lot to say about that. And the answer is that the responsibility for one's discipleship lies ultimately with them. But God brings along teachers to help along the way. But, beloved, the responsibility lies not with the elders, it lies with you. Let me just remind you a little bit about that, that you might feel the full force of this. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work it out, he says. Go with me over to James. Chapter 1, verse 22. James 1, 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And really, this, I think, is under-translated. The, the Greek participle would be more literally translated, you put away from yourself these things. You put away from yourself all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the world, Word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Put this stuff away and long for this, he says. Whose responsibility is it? First and foremost, it's yours. Personally. But God does not leave you alone. God gives Disciple-makers, teachers, leaders within the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Paul says, And we proclaim Him, that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom and that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose I also labor striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Agonizes, he says. It is individually your responsibility, yet at the same time, God brings along people to help you in the process. He doesn't leave you hanging out there all by yourself. Probably one of the best known, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. 
verses 11 and following. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. God gives pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints and for how long will he continue to supply pastor teachers look again at verse 13 until they attain to a mature faith that's the rest of our lives he will continue to provide help to you for the rest of your life as you work through the process of maturity maybe i can illustrate it for you when you plant a tree in your backyard, whose responsibility is it that the tree grows? Hmm? We know the answer because if the tree doesn't grow, who gets cut down? Right? But you also, as the gardener, have your own responsibilities to water, to prune, right? To trim, to spray for insects, fertilize, so forth. It is the tree's responsibility to grow, but you as the gardener have your responsibilities to aid and to assist. It is our responsibility to grow individually as disciples, but God gives us help. Gives us help. And beloved, it's not a comfortable process. Becoming a mature disciple of Jesus Christ is not a comfortable process. Because what it means is becoming less and less and less like what you were and becoming more and more and more like what you're not. It means putting off the old man and putting on the new. It means be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It means looking like the Son of God, and that is not comfortable. It hurts. And it hurts individually at all different levels because all of us have our stuff that has to be dealt with. That's the discipleship process. So if Foothill is serious about developing disciples, that means that we're going to need to be involved in a difficult task of challenging and admonishing and encouraging one another to strive after Christ. It means we are going to need to be involved in one another's lives. It means that we're, that we're not just in this alone, but we need the body to help us in the process. Proverbs say, like iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, right? Well, when you put iron to the flint, you get sparks. Wherever it leads us, Wherever it takes us, we need to be willing to go. We must be willing to go. We must be willing to pay the price.
price. Secondly, Foothill Bible Church develops disciples to reach the nations by focusing upon qualified leaders who will strengthen the ministry of our church as we extend its ministry to the outermost part of the earth. We need to focus upon qualified leaders. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. It's a seminal text. And these things, Paul says, that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul writes 2 Timothy from a Roman prison. The executioner's blade is soon to fall. He doesn't have a whole lot of time left. And so he writes to Timothy, his faithful disciple, and he says, set things in order there at the church at Ephesus, Timothy, where you're pastoring, and then come to me. Come quickly. Bring the parchments. Come before winter. And Timothy is going to be a dangerous journey. There's going to be obstacles along the way. And so you, being a timid man, need to be fortified. And so Paul writes to fortify this man the task before him. Paul wants to strengthen Timothy in his commitment to the apostolic message. Notice with me, look over here in verse 13, 14 of chapter 1. He says, Retain the standard of sound words, Timothy, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to you. Timothy, you've been given a deposit. Now, hang on to it. But don't just hang on to it. Invest it. Hold it for yourself, Timothy. Guard it for yourself, chapter 1. Chapter 2, invest it in future generations. This deposit, by the way, beloved, is not just the gospel. For over in chapter 2 of... First Timothy, Paul says it's for all men. And here in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy 2, it says it's for faithful men. So it's a little bit different. It's a, it's a more narrow focus here in 2 Timothy. It is, it is the body of apostolic truth that we would call Christian doctrine. It's more than the simple gospel. It's all of that full orb theology that has been developed for us in the New Testament, he says, Timothy, hang on to that, guard that, don't lose that. Because when you make a disciple, Jesus said, it's teaching them everything, right, that I have taught you. It's more than just the simple gospel, it's the whole deal, it's the scriptures. It's the scriptures. And notice who that he is to entrust it to. Look again, chapter 2, verse 2. Notice the word entrust, by the way. That's an investment term. That's a banking term. That's, to, that's to, to put it somewhere where you expect a return from it. Entrust it. And not just to anybody, but to faithful men. Do you see that? Pistos, faithful men. The same word is translated down in verse 11 as trustworthy. He says it's a trustworthy statement. Pistos, faithful statement. Entrusted Timothy to trustworthy men. Not just anybody will do. 
It has to be trustworthy men, faithful men. Men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see that? There's sort of qualifications, Timothy, as to where you should make the investment. Certain companies that are worth investing in and certain companies that aren't, right? Well, Timothy, if you want to know which company of men is worth investing in, these are the ways you know. They have to be faithful men. They have to be able to teach others also. These are the men you should pour your life into. Notice, by the way, in verse 2, the things Paul taught Timothy. Timothy's to teach other men who were able to teach other men also. Four generations in one verse. Paul's looking way beyond Timothy. He's looking at people that aren't even born yet. By the way, this strategy of reproduction is not just unique to the Apostle Paul. Jesus had three, twelve, seventy, five hundred. Who did he spend the majority of his time with? Right? Three, then twelve. And out it went, or in it went, however you like to look at it. Paul himself, did you read through the New Testament? It's just a handful of names that come up over and over again. Timothy, Luke, Silas, Titus. These are the men Paul invested himself in. We have elders and deacon training programs at Foothill. We can invest ourselves in faithful men. Jesus told us how to find a a faithful man in Luke 16. Luke 16.10. Jesus said, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. The principle is is that you begin small. And when a person proves themselves faithful in something small, then they get something bigger, and then something bigger, and then something bigger. It's a process. So at Foothill, we're looking for fat people, which is good for some of us, right? Faithful, available, teachable. We're looking for people who prove themselves trustworthy at at the levels of ministry in which they're involved. And and when they prove themselves trustworthy at that level, then more responsibility comes. God provides. Part of our strategic vision is to is to see everybody here involved in ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul likens the church to a human body and it says you need all the parts functioning or the body is somehow hindered. Everybody here needs to be involved in ministry at some level. 
And then as people show themselves faithful at the level at which they are, then there is greater opportunity that comes and greater opportunity that comes. But everybody's got to start. You have to start somewhere. Third. Third activity. Foothill Bible Church develops disciples to reach the nations by planting reproducing churches with mature leadership as God's ordained means to evangelize the world. That is a huge statement. God's ordained means to evangelize the world. Beloved, do you know that it is only to the church that God has given the promise of spiritual success? There are many fine organizations, parachurch organizations out there doing really good things, but they do not, are not recipients of the promised blessing that comes only to the church. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus said, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. The promise of success goes to the church and only to the church. The means of spiritual prosperity of the gospel is entrusted to the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the church, Paul says that Jesus purchased with his own blood. Let me quickly run through a few things with you just to remind you of the significance of the church. This is probably appropriate because we live in a day in which there is so much parachurch activity going on. And I'm not at war with parachurches, please. But understand the centrality of the church. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Spiritual oversight is committed by God. Uh, The spiritual oversight of His people is committed by God to the leaders of the church. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. People are under spiritual oversight of the leaders of the church. Hebrews 10, verse 24. It is in the context of the church that believers are to associate with, for mutual edification, one with another. 10:24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are to assemble together as a church to encourage one another. In fact, the one another's of the scriptures occur in the epistles that are written to the churches. It is, to, it is within the context of the churches that we practice the one another's. It is within the context of the church that spiritual discipline takes place. Right? The third stage, Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Go ahead and turn there just so you get this fixed in your mind. I have too many blank stairs. We've got to go there. 
Matthew 18, verse 17, the third step, right? You go to the person individually, you go with the appropriate witnesses, and they don't listen to those two cases. The third case, you do what? Talk to me. Verse 17, tell it to the church. It is within the church that spiritual discipline occurs. I don't have time to develop this, but I would say that it is also within the context of the church that both communion and baptism occur. There are exceptions in the New Testament, I know. But take a look at 1 Corinthians 11, Acts 2.41. And understand, well, not now, but understand, it is there that these ordinances are practiced. Beloved, it is all about the church. And it is through the church that God accomplishes His redemptive plan. Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, 1 through 3. I'm not going to read it for you. You know this. We've even referred to it in the past. This is the calling out of the leaders for church planting, right? I want you to see, though, in verse 2... Second half of the verse, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice that phrase. The work to which I have called them. Then go over to chapter 14 and in verse 26. When they come back and they report back to the church at Antioch. Verse 26, chapter 14. And from there they sailed to Antioch from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. What was the work that the Holy Spirit had set them apart to do what was the work they reported that they had accomplished through God's grace. Answer? Planting churches. Planting churches. It is church planting. Planting reproducing churches. Not churches that are cul-de-sacs, dead ends. But reproducing churches. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, just listen. In verse 1, and by the way, 1 Thess is addressed to the church of the Thessalonians. Okay? It is addressed to the church. And he speaks in verse 8 of chapter 1, and he says, It's from whom the word of the Lord has sounded forth in Macedonia and Achaia. Those are the two provinces of Greece. What he's saying, it is through the church that the gospel has rung forth throughout all of Greece. And it is only one church. The church at Thessalonica. Beloved, there are many, 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 many places that you or I will never go. Never. But the church will go. And the church will go in the, in the, in the embodiment of church planting ministries, church planters. That's how we will do our part in reaching the nations. Ten years ago, we, thereabouts, sent out Dan Hubiar to Brazil to plant a church among a remote tribal people that you and I will never visit. By God's grace, we will soon send out Dennis and Dawn to plant a church in Idaho to a place that the majority of us will never visit. 
It is through church planting ministries of reproducing churches that we will reach beyond just this ourselves and our children, but we will reach out to the future generations. How do we pass on the china and the recipe and the cook? We do it when we plant a church. Plant a church. We have five core statements. Five core value statements. Can you name them? Hmm? Devoted. Talk to me. The Lord Jesus Christ. Determined. Dedicated. Daring. Developing. Okay. I thought I was going to be done here, but I'm not. I mean, I'm done for this morning. Don't worry. But I'm going to look at this one more time next week. I'm going to do a sixth. Because we've had vacations and people have missed and so forth. And maybe along the way you've just sort of gotten a choppy view of this. Next week I want to come back and I want to show you how all five of these core values are interrelated. That one presupposes the other. And that four is not enough. You need the five. They all tie together. That's going to be our goal for next week. If you are with us uh, this morning and something you've heard perhaps here or even throughout the week, it's kind of rolling around in your mind. You have spiritual questions you'd like somebody to help you with. We would be pleased to be able to do that. Maybe you want to know just how do I uh, how do I join Foothill Bible Church? Maybe I need you know I need to be baptized. You talked about baptism. I've never been baptized, but I, but I know that I need to be. How do I go about that? We'll have some folks standing down here by this lighted cross at the end of the service. You come down there and you talk to them, and they will answer your questions and help you. Okay, let's pray. Our Father God, it is with excitement and it is with a certain measure of trembling that we complete these five core values, drawing a line in the sand as it were and placing out our stake, our flag, and and saying that we want to live for Jesus Christ and we want to do it in such a way that that is noticeable, that is culturally confrontive, that is risky. Lord God, we want to make count what hours, days, weeks, or years that you have for us. We understand, our Father, the principle that our life is short and but a vapor. We understand, our Father, that no man knows the day of his death but you. And so, Lord God, whether you give us many years or merely days, we want to invest them here and now in eternal things. But, Lord God, we confess we are weak of faith. We confess, our Father, that we are easily sidetracked and distracted. Lord God, we plead with you to pour out your grace and mercy upon us. To help us, our Father, to do what we know in our heart is right to do. Lord God, we pray that you'll be pleased to work in and through this body. Not that we would be able to puff up ourselves and say, look what good things we have done, Lord, no but that we might give you glory. Be merciful to us, our Father, we pray.
in the name of the one who hung on a cross to atone for our sin. Amen.